The champ is here. I'm gonna continue to stand with the people. The champ is here. I will I'm not, not, not lose. lose. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you are here with we. My name is EJ, and I got my man. Your mate. Yes, he is the DB of the show, and we are Black in Sports, your award-winning podcast here, giving a voice to the culture that won't shut up and dribble, here interviewing the best professionals in the game and in the boardroom, providing a platform to be heard. So you know how we started off. We have to welcome our guests, and we're thankful to have the time. So she hails from the last frontier. She is an HBCU grad and a running rebel. All right, a former congressional district rep. We have to get into that. So, cause I'm saying some of our listeners may not know what that is, right? And hell, we don't even know what it is at the time. An entrepreneur, a partner, and now current VP of government affairs for the Las Vegas Raiders. Please, please, please clap it up for Piper Overstreet White. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful. I feel blessed. Thank you for having me. Um, congratulations on this platform. I'm proud of you, brothers, for having this platform. This is actually, I've done um, radio and TV, but this is my first podcast. Let's hey. go. Let's go. So, hey, to, to start it off, this is how we like to start off, okay? We ask all of our guests to give us a shoot their shot moment. All right, so it could be any time in life. It could be early in your career, now, currently, or yesterday, right? So a shoot-your-shot moment where you went for it all. You could have fumbled <laughs> or you could have had the winning score. So give us a moment in time where you shot your shot. I will tell you, um, <clears throat> 2008, which it was, I think, um, just a defining moment probably for a lot of people just because of what happened with the economy and the downturn and how it impacted economies like the one here in Las Vegas that are based around tourism. Um, there were, at the time I was employed by a major um, casino gaming company um, doing government affairs as well. And uh, we had three rounds of layoffs in that year and I got hit in the second round. So um, I was laid off from my job and I was in a, a place in my life at that time where things were a little rough. Uh, and so I did what I think anybody who has bills to pay would do is I went and got a a minimum wage job working at Macy's at the fashion show mall, actually. Um, so work in retail. And while I was working that job and doing the best that I could at that job, because I'm just, it's in my nature to be a hard worker. I don't care what the task is. I'm going to go at it hundred um, percent. I was just working on what my rebound was going to be, right? What, how was I going to bounce back when opportunity presented itself and when things turned around and opportunity started opening back up? And so, oh gosh, 2009, um, that opportunity came. And it was interesting. I, I went off on my own. It gave me the courage after what happened to start my own consulting firm, which I ended up doing for, for about a decade after that. I shot my shot at the store manager at Macy's who really, he was a retail guy. I didn't really have a good understanding of uh, the political world and the world that I came from, but recognized my talent because he'd offered me a promotion and wanted me to stay on. I said, thank you. I really appreciate um, you coming to me with this opportunity and recognizing my work ethic. I said, however, um, retail is not in my career path. I want to get back into government affairs and politics. And I said, I'm going to start my own consulting firm. So I was a contract lobbyist, going to be a contract lobbyist. And I asked if Macy's would be my first client. He had no idea, honestly, what to do with that and offered me an even larger promotion. I said, thanks, but no thanks. And that didn't quite work out. But I ended up getting a call from my former employer uh, because of all the layoffs, 
the government affairs department had been whittled down to one person and that one person uh, was getting ready to go on maternity leave and they had nobody to take over. And so they actually had me come back and be the interim executive director of government affairs and were my first client out the block in 2009. So I, um, I just built from there and I will tell you, it opened my eyes up because if I, if that had not happened, I probably would have been, uh, in corporate America, probably the same corporation, just kind of working to make whatever the next title was up in the organization. And what I ended up doing by going out on my own was realizing that my earning potential was triple and quadruple what I thought it was when I was in house. So I think that was my sh shoot my shot moment. And, um, it, it was all net. It, it worked out <laughs> and here I am. Love it. That's beautiful. God is good. So, so Piper, um, from your childhood, if it played its role at all, what, what role did sports play um, in your upbringing? So interestingly enough, my entree into the sports world wasn't through sports itself. It was actually through my profession and through politics. I, I grew up with um, parents who I consider activists. Uh, my parents were always um, involved in the community. My father was one of the, the original co-founders of the Alaska Black Caucus. And yes, there is enough Black people in Alaska to have a Black Caucus, um, a very active one. Um, we were always involved in activities and giving back to the community and performed every month with King Day when um, when all a lot of the Black community kids would come together and just kind of celebrate our cultural heritage at those. Well, actually, you know what's funny? I actually grew up celebrating Juneteenth. My father was also one of the co-founders of original Juneteenth celebration in Alaska. So wow. I know that um, in the last few years, June, Juneteenth has become a national conversation, but I grew up celebrating Juneteenth. So it was instilled in me very early to be involved in my community and be politically active. I was knocking on people's doors, telling them to get out and vote and which candidates to vote for since I was probably seven, eight years old. That's so wild. that was instilled in me early. And now, if you had asked me, you know, in high school, college, or even maybe even early in my political career, if um, I had planned to be in politics for a living, I would have told you no. And I wouldn't have put it together. And it wasn't until I got to the age that I am now and looking back in hindsight and saying, you know what, I was set on this path. It, it You know, it, it wasn't a mistake that I ended up doing what I'm doing because um, it was instilled in me from very early on. So very ignorant question I have to ask, like, obviously, Alaska. Um, <laughs> How was growing up in Alaska in, in, in general? So, you know, I in hindsight, again, it was a, it was a great place to grow. It was a great place to raise a family. I was there. We're talking late 70s through the 80s, early 90s. I graduated high school in 1994, and that's when I, I left the state. But I experienced um, overt bigotry and racism very early, like second grade on yeah. all the way up. And um I just got to a point, especially in high school, it's my junior year of high school, I believe there was a, a small group of neo-Nazi skinheads that came into my school um, and things got so bad. I mean, they had to end school early one day because there was just so many fights. Um, and I got, I, I knew that I wanted to go to an HBCU because of that experience and just kind of being the only one or one of few um, for most of my life, I wanted to have that HBCU experience. And so I, I will say that growing up in Alaska was great. I mean, I had, listen, like I said, I, I had a great family structure. We, we stayed involved in the community. 
we were very involved in our church. I was the president of our church youth group for two years, two years in high school when I was a teenager. So I definitely had that community that had my back. So it wasn't that, you know, that I didn't have support, but when I went to school Mm -hmm. is when, you know, all that sort of went away because, you know, I was in a predominantly white environment and, the a predominantly white school. And so race was just always at the forefront of my experience. And that's really what shaped my experience. So I would say it's a great place to raise a family, but it's definitely not without its faults and challenges. And, and honestly, you know, I was frustrated going through those things and, mm-hmm. you know, being called racial slurs from, you know, reconstruction era, racial slurs. I mean, oh. at a young age and not really knowing how to process that other than just being angry and feeling ostracized. Um, looking back, I'm glad it happened because it helped shape how I address things and the way I see the world. And I'm appreciative of that. That's awesome. So how did HBCU reach you? Like, how did you do the, you know, cause I'm not sure if the HBCU alum or, or like the, the travel is going to your school in Alaska. So how did you hear about, um, which H or how did you select which HBCU you wanted to go to? You know what? I'm going to be very transparent with you. I honestly, um, I, it was only going to be Howard or Hampton. I knew I wanted to go to HBCU, but um, at the time, I wasn't really um, that interested in going down south, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas. So I looked to Eastern Seaboard, and it was Howard or Hampton, and I got the acceptance letter from Hampton, and that was it. That was all she wrote. I had never stepped foot on the campus. I never did a visit. My first day on campus was the first day we moved into the dorms. Um, my father, being the man that he is, who believes very much in independence, um, dropped me off, quite literally dropped me off um, and dipped. <laughs> and there I was, you know, moving into my dorm room and 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 uh, moving on with my future. And it was the best, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. I, I really value my experience at Hampton. Nice. So I'm, I'm a I'm a transition kind of nerd. I, I I love hearing the transitions and how people go through different transitions in their life. So obviously the transition from Alaska to to Hampton. How was that for you? How did you adjust? Was it just I'm home right away? What was that transition period like? I felt at home right away. The biggest culture shock was for me. So in Alaska, a lot of the um, the culture, especially if you're talking about black culture or hip hop culture, um, is very West Coast because that's the closest thing to us, right? Because we're above Canada, the, the closest states on the continental US are, um, you know, Pacific Northwest and on down. And so while we would probably get it a little bit later than everybody else, it was mostly West Coast. So my biggest culture shock, honestly, was just getting used to East Coast and East Coast style. And I was like, I don't know what a herb is. How many times can you say sun in one sentence? I mean, that was really <laughs> what I had to get used to. And honestly, I um I, I wasn't into reggae, but now what? I got my Barrington Levy dance hall playlist going, and that was all because of the East Coast influence of going to Hampton. And most of my friends are from Tri-State or DMV area. Let's go. So <laughs> we can stay on that for, we can have a whole, we need to do just a whole HBCU show. Right. Um, but just kind of sticking with miles of transition, right? So then you left that and you um, went, did your master's at UNLV. Mm-hmm. So how did that come about and talk to us about that transaction? So I, I, yeah, no, I, I'm happy to. So 
Um, my parents had actually retired in Vegas while I was at Hampton. So they had moved from Alaska. They were in Chicago for a while, and then they moved to Las Vegas. They always knew they wanted to retire in Las Vegas. So when I graduated from Hampton, I was really set on staying on the East Coast because um, I'd gotten so used to it, and I fell in love with it. And But I wasn't getting a job. My parents were like, so I'm going to need you to come back cross country and reevaluate and uh, reevaluate re your priorities. So that's what I did. I, you know, it was essentially coming home, although this is not where I, I grew up. I was, I moved to Vegas and within a few months of living in Vegas, there was a job opportunity working for um, a member of Congress who had just gotten elected. Um, Cause this was the winter of 98. So you're talking about that election year of 1998. And it was Congresswoman Shelley Berkeley who represented Congressional District 1 before Dina Titus did, who's who's there representing the seat now. And she was hiring staff and needed someone who could cover um, several areas of constituent outreach, including African-American. So I got a chance to interview and I got the job and never looked back. I, it was it was the best decision, again, that I could have made career wise. I, I actually encourage young people that I mentor or talk to who may not know what they want to do. Because um, you don't always have to know what you want to do. You should be prepared, but you don't always have to have a plan. Right. And um, I say work for an elected official. If you don't know what you want to do, work for an elected official because you, the network that you build from that can take you anywhere you want to go. And that's essentially what happened to me. And it's it's funny. A lot of people think I'm from Vegas originally because I started that job. So, you know, I was not, I was 22 years old. If you look back at pictures, you probably think I was, you know, a teenager just because I looked so young at the time, but I was everywhere all the time and got to know the community very, very well. And so I just felt a part of the community. And now what, almost 25 years later, I mean, this is home for me. That's awesome. And I think that's a perfect kind of transition from like your background into kind of getting into the career. So maybe kind of still a hybrid question going from your background to getting into your career. Where did that start? Like, what did you study in college? Was there any kind of so you talked about it like growing up, right? Your dad being a part of the Black Caucus and the things that you did that was rooted in you. But what did you study? Was there anything in college that you studied um, that kind of really started promoting you um, to kind of get into this field? Yeah, so I majored in political science. Uh, and, and I will tell you, again, that wasn't a plan. I honestly, <laughs> at that stage of my life, I was like, yeah, I'm not really into math. I don't really want to do engineering. And I, I was like, ah, I'm not accounting. And it was really by process of elimination that I landed in political science. But again, hindsight, that was the path that I was set on. I just didn't realize it at the time. But I did. I majored in political science. And I actually continued my political volunteerism. When I was in college, I, I um, volunteered on Congressman Bobby Scott's campaign, who's a congressman out of out of Virginia. People, uh, a, a lot of your background and even now is dealing with people, obviously. So what skill sets did you grab from home or did you develop in college that is just kind of working with just people and different perspectives? I think some of it's innate. Like, I'm just a people person. I, I enjoy um, chatting with people. It, the one thing that people really don't know about me is I, I think I consider myself an introvert and that's not because I have an issue socializing or being in front of people or talking to people. Um, but my social battery gets drained, but I think interaction is important. And I actually talk to my kids about this, especially my son, my son, I have a 16 year old son who's a junior and in high school and I talked to him about communication and being able to talk to people. That's such an important skill set. It's a very underrated skill set because not everybody knows how to do it and do it well and it's and getting worse during this time frame in life too 
right? Yeah, that's right. I had to do a lot of, um, and I never was comfortable at, up until my really middle age, comfortable public speaking, but it was something that I always did. I had to do it as a child, you know, whether it was, you know, the church, you know, play <laughs> or the Dr. King speech, Dr. King speech. I have a dream, all of that. And I had to, you know, make myself uncomfortable to get comfortable in, in doing that. I took a speech class in college and, you know, just my career and being in politics, you, you're always going to have to speak in public. So I think public speaking and just interpersonal communication is super important. Awesome. You think if I say, uh, if I tell my wife my social battery is uh, drained, I'll get in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's all in how you position it. It's all about something, Miles. That's what I have to do for a living. It's all about how you present it. <laughs> I'm going to work on that. <laughs> oh, man. So um, I do want to highlight one of the companies that you work for, which is really interesting um, just because of how pivotal they were like in the space. So um, you were uh, working with Uber and, you know, just kind of, you know, like you said, the casino background and, and working for, you know, uh, uh, Representative uh, Shelley. How did you kind of find that role? And then what was your experience in that role? And I will have some follow up questions, but I kind of wanted to get an, an, you know, an intro or how you got there, how you got started. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how I got to Uber was I, um, I mentioned being a contract lobbyist um, beforehand, right? So some of my client work came as subcontracts from bigger firms. Mm. Um, and the firm that I actually ended up being a partner at, um, but this is prior to me actually joining the firm, they would subcontract sub work to me. And that meant a lot of times that I would work out of the same office, especially up in Carson City. So in Nevada, our state capital is Carson City. Our state legislature is what we call a part-time legislature. So everybody that serves in our state legislature is not a full-time politician. Like there are people that have day jobs and uh, every uh, odd numbered year for 120 days, from February to June is when our state legislature convenes and everybody that doesn't live in Northern Nevada, which is the bulk of the population, right? That works in politics. If you're a lobbyist or if you're an elected official, you move up to Carson City. And so um, I was living in Carson City at the time and um, doing some subcontract work with um, the Griffin company. Uber was one of their clients. And so I did some subcontract work uh, with them on that particular client. And then their in-house person um, ended up leaving. And so um, I, I put in for the job and went through a course of about seven interviews and, and ended up getting the job. And when, when I was there, I uh, was responsible for uh, running the government uh, relations efforts across five Western states. That's fantastic. That's absolutely amazing. And then uh, one of the big highlights that I kind of you know picked up on was what was the genesis of, you know, the uh, deal you did with Uber uh, with uh, AG Aaron Ford, uh, Aaron Ford? Oh, OK. So, yeah. Are you talking about the um, the rides, the rides for, for victims? Yeah. For, for domestic survivors. Victims? Yeah. So, yeah, that's it, that's dope. It is and, dope. And, and, and people don't dope. know it's such a really big like it's huge here in Las Vegas. Like it when is. I was living somewhere else, someone was telling me that like Vegas is one of the biggest. Um, you know, for um, female, for domestic violence and, you know, um, and all of that. So, yeah, please share some on that. Yeah. And we've got I will tell you, we've got a lot of great community resources. Matter of fact, this past Sunday, um, I spoke at the Shade Tree, which is a women's shelter for um, women who are victims of domestic violence. Um, it provides a shelter for women, children and, and their household pets. 
Um, Safeness is another organization. So there's quite a few organizations that provide resources um, for anyone in need. And I'm always happy to help support and build those resources out. But the genesis of that particular partnership was I actually know um, AG, AG Ford when he was back when he was uh, Senator Ford. And um, so we had a good working rapport. And whenever any of um, our community folks or our elected officials um, are doing something that we think we can be helpful with, and that doesn't matter what role I'm in, but at the time I was in, I was at Uber, so it was transportation. If we can fill that void, then we will um, to the best of our ability. And at the time, um, his, his office was working on launching a program and expanding resources for victims of domestic violence. So naturally transportation is a gap, right? A transportation is huge if you're a victim of domestic violence and you're trying to get away from your abuser very quickly. And so that was just another form of transportation and an option for those victims to exercise should they need it. That's awesome. So Go ahead. No, 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 not just yet. So one more thing I have for you. Um, what was the transition like? So now, uh, well, first, I guess I want to say, you know, we're on the dawning of like uh, women's history. Um, well, inter- we're filming. We're filming on uh, International Women's Day and during Women's History Month. Um, what are some of the big strides you've seen in sports and in tech, right? Like in government, because um, you were in like some industries where we really don't see people of your stature and in your position. Yes. Uh, happy International Women's Day. That's why I'm wearing my green. I'm wearing my green today. I didn't have purple, but green is, is, is one of the colors as well. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a few examples. So I'll start with, with politics and government. So Nevada was the first state in the union to um, have a majority female legislature. So we have more women elected to our state legislature than um, uh, men. And that was a, a history-making moment. Um our last session. So um, we continue to um, to carry that torch. And I think that's a big deal because I think politics is is um, for so many years, for generations really was seen as an old boys club, right? And now here we are living in a state where we have more women elected to the state legislature than, than men. So that's cool. I, I would say, yeah, it is dope. And, um, and I, I see, you know, amongst the lobby corps, more women, more women of color, more people of color, um, especially a lot more than even when I started back in, you know, uh, the early 2000s. So that makes me very proud. I think in sports, uh, I would give two great examples. The Las Vegas Aces are so dope. And it's so cool that they brought home a championship to this state, first professional sports, sports team to do so. And it was it was women led by um, you know, black women. And I just, um, I, I value that so much. And I was so proud. Um, I will say if I could, this because this is sort of a, um, a personal point of pride. I, I come from a long line of, of, of activists and barrier breakers. And my maternal grandmother actually integrated the USGA. She was, um, she was a beast at the game of golf and not a lot of people know her story. You know, this is way pre Tiger Woods and, and, you know, before the game of golf became um, the popular sport and, and folks actually paid attention to it. She was um, integrating tournaments and golf courses all over the world. Yes. Shout out to Ann Gregory. And we're going to spend some time in that when we get to your platform. So we want to we'll, we'll, we'll top we'll table that right now. Uh, one more question before MHL. He wants to get into some to the quick hits. So your role in government affairs. So give us like a day in the life of government affairs for an NFL team, right? Because I think a lot of people, and I think us as a culture in general, really 
government is like this really audacious word yeah. where we don't know like a lot of what it means right and there's so many layers right. to it right and i think it would behoove us for you to kind of just give like maybe that you know that um one-on-one of maybe what uh government affairs is and then what you would do in your day-to-day job um as with the raiders yeah so one thing that's interesting about this job is it's it can change from day to day right it's not the same it's not getting up you know every day at the same time and coming in and sitting at your desk all day long and doing these tasks it can change uh at the drop of a dime and i'll give you a prime example i um i just before i uh, came on this podcast i had to book my my ticket to carson city because i got wind that there's um, a piece of legislation coming that could be problematic for us. And so I need to make my plans and set my meetings and, and plan for a whole day to clear my calendar um, that I would ordinarily have if I was here in Vegas to go to, to travel to Carson City. Um, on another day, it could be the county commission um, that meets uh, twice a month on Tuesdays at 9 a.m. They post the agenda a week in advance. I look at the agenda and see something that's, oh, that's that's something that we might want to have a voice in. So then I would I would have to be down at the county commission and, and ready to make public comment. Same thing for um, city councils. And, you know, I could get a call from the mayor of North Las Vegas with something. And it, it just, it, it varies from day to day. It's rare that I have a day um, where I don't have an external meeting or an external engagement. It's rare that I don't have an evening where um, I'm going to a community event because that's that's in, important as well. Um, people need to see us and see that we're a part of the fabric of the community and that we're a voice in this city. And so it really isn't, there's really not a standard day in government affairs. Piper, let me ask you this, uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm the type of person that I'm, I won't talk if I don't know much. And, and, and government is one of those things. I know my dad was in the Air Force, my, my both of my parents were. So from that angle, I can understand a little bit. But for a novice or for somebody that's a casual like like me, what are some things that they can do to kind of prep themselves uh, into knowing some local policies and obviously uh, nationwide? You know what? You know what the best tool is? And this is not you know a tool that I even had growing up with is social media. All of your elected officials have Twitter handles and Instagrams and Facebook accounts. I would say that my advice would be start following those folks. And if you don't know who they are, Google them or ask, you know, me or, you know, people like me that work in politics and say, yeah, who are some, some good representatives? Who are my representatives, right? Uh, who are they? And I just go click follow and they will tell you everything they're doing because that's what they do, right? Mm-hmm. They have to communicate to their constituents what they have going on. You can, you can follow and you can even, if you don't want to follow, you know, every state legislator, you can follow the speaker or the majority leader. You can follow the governor or you can follow, you know, the chair of the Nevada Black Legislative Caucus and you will, you'll be able to stay informed. So I think that's probably the easiest way to, to keep abreast of what the conversation is. That was a great one, MH. Because, you know, that's, I think that's the big hurdle, right? Like not knowing where to start and it's, it's cumbersome and, um, you know, I, I didn't even think about just the Black Caucus as, as a way to start just, you know, to let them kind of feed you with some of the information. And, and the, the best way to get started is just to get started, right? Mm-hmm. So, MH, you got those quick hits? Yeah, Piper, this is a couple of just random questions about uh, about yourself, you know, letting our listeners kind of get to know you a little better. So, uh, who was your hero? 
You know, I have heroes uh, in my own family, so I've never had to look outward for heroes. I mean, my grandmother, uh, my father, who, like I mentioned earlier in the in the podcast, it, are folks that I saw doing the work um, my whole life. And so I always had, had great examples. So I would just say them. What do you enjoy? I'm not trying to get in your pockets, but what do you enjoy spending money on? Food. I'm an experienced person. So this is, you know, I, I it's, it's funny you should ask it because I was having a conversation with some friends and, you know, it's easy for people to go, oh man, why? I can't believe people spend money on this or that. And I'm like, everybody has their thing that they splurge on just because somebody else's isn't like yours doesn't mean um, they shouldn't be able to do that. Like you, you go in my closet, you're not going to see a ton of designer handbags or a ton of designer shoes. But you're going to find me at the good restaurants and you're going to find me (laughs) (laughs) trying to book, you know, a decent vacation. But I'm an experiential person. So I like I I spend I spend I'll spend money on a good meal. Your go to karaoke song. Um, Don't Stop Believing by Journey. (laughs) Hitting notes. (laughs) (laughs) Trying. Love or love and basketball are the wood. Love and basketball. I don't know, Piper. Um, <laughs> Listen, what? there's a connection with Omar Epps that I can't explain. So it's just got to go. What emoji do you use the most? Uh, the brown thumbs up. I like the browns. Let's, let's get specific. <laughs> <laughs> they should have gave me that tool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All day. Yeah, I've been praying for everybody with black hands for a long time. That's my, that's my, I'm praying for you with the black hands. And I call my friends out that don't use the colored emoji too. I'm like, really? You gonna use you gonna use that yellow? Okay. Uh first time, if ever, you've been starstruck. Oh wow. Have I been starstruck? You know, I met. I'm into celebrity chefs, and um, recently I had the opportunity to meet one of the celebrity chefs, his name's Angelo, and he was on the Houston season of Top Chef, and I was a little starstruck. Like, I I think this is a whole, you see, there's a food theme going on here. Um, I think that's one of the only times that I ever really felt starstruck because, you know, I respect... um, people's space and privacy. So I've always tried to just, you know, you see somebody famous, you're like, oh, that's cool. I saw that famous person, but I don't ever approach him. But somebody actually introduced me and I actually got to eat in the restaurant. Mm. So I think that's what created that uh, starstruck situation for me. And not trying to put you in a hot spot, but do you have a favorite restaurant here or or, a favorite food that you like to go to or go to? Yeah, my favorite restaurant is Javier's at the um, Aria. I'm telling you. I'm, I'm telling you, I, I, I totally agree. The shrimp and crab enchiladas. I'm you, telling you. That those are if you like enchiladas and you don't have a seafood allergy, uh that'll that'll make your night. Yeah, that chips and salsa. I don't know what kind of salt they sprinkle on that uh those those chips, but they brought the bag out to me like here, bro. You <laughs> you getting us in trouble. Here's the bag for you. I'll say this. If I could add one more, I know it's a rapid fire and I'm supposed to only give one, but I always need to plug local spots. Yeah. Um, and I would say Grits Cafe, if you haven't been there, owner Trina Giles, she's a staple in the community. And if you want a good hot bowl of grits, 
And to me, they're they're chicken and waffles rival Roscoe's. So really yeah, Grits Cafe. I'm with you. So Foo Young is my spot. That's my local spot here. Bruce Leroy, you get the Bruce Leroy. Yeah, I'm telling you that. <laughs> Bruce Leroy hit. <laughs> I got that city, Jay. All right. So uh, we want to jump into the winner's circle. Uh, this is where we just talk about some of the things that, um, you know, near and dear to you. Uh, we got a couple of good ones on here. And, you know, we'll just kind of flow how it flows. Uh, but one thing that you've mentioned throughout this interview, and, you know, like I said, thank you for sharing, is just mentors that you've had and the fact that you like to mentor. And, you know, we came across the fact that uh, you were involved with Jack and Jill. And, um, you know, I, I just want to know how you got involved. Um, was it, did they have Jack and Jill in Alaska? Um, but just know how you got involved in, and what that organization means to you. And maybe just a little bit of, for those that don't know what Jack and Jill was, because I didn't know about it until my adult life. Yeah. So um, to answer one of your questions, so there is a, uh, a, a chapter of Jack and Jill in Alaska now, but there was not when I was growing up there. Awesome. Um, so Jack and Jill is uh, essentially a black family organization. The mother is the member of the organization technically. So the mother, you know, votes and, and, and sits on committees, but it's, it's a family organization. So, um, we have events every month through our program year for kids who are grouped by age and grade. Um, and what it was created for is for, um, black kids who honestly kind of, sort of like I described, right. Growing up in predominantly white environments or maybe, um, environments where, um, they didn't have a chance on a daily basis to be around, um, other kids that look like them. And so, um, Jack and Jill was formed to provide that opportunity and of course spread co cultural awareness and, and education. And, and that's the part I like about it. So, um, I got into Jack and Jill. So the Jack and Jill chapter here in Las Vegas, you have to be sponsored by an existing mother member. And oh, okay. so I was sponsored by Berna Rhodes Ford, who's actually the wife of um, Attorney General Ford and um, is the general counsel at Nevada State College. And so she um, approached me and thought I would be a good candidate and that my family would be um, a great addition to the local chapter here. So that's how I joined Jack and Jill. And I served on the um, executive board for our chapter for four years, and now I serve as the lead teen advisor. Our teen group, which is ninth through 12th graders, uh, we try to help them run their own mini chapter within our chapter because um, it gives them, you know, experience in uh, running a uh, meeting using Rob Robert's rules of order and sort of being their own managers. And getting them prepared to go to college and beyond. So um, they have me and uh, two other wonderful mothers um, that Stacy Powell and Shaka Chrome, who are um, amazing and help us sort of make sure that our teens are doing what they're supposed to be doing and learning um, the processes that are, that are required to, to be on an executive board. That's fantastic. I've been a witness to your uh, mentorship um, just in the short time that I've known you, Piper. So, and I and I think, in my own experiences, there's obviously you have to listen and you know understand uh, the different mentees and what they're kind of going through. So, I, I don't know if it's called a strategy or what you see in in, in people. Like you know, you're a listener. So, how did you develop that skill set in, in in kind of mentoring people of obviously listening where they're at and kind of meeting them where they are. You know, that's interesting. I, I don't know that I learned it. Um, I'm kind of, I consider myself to be somewhat of an empath. 
um, when it comes to people. So I think that's where the listening part comes in because I can kind of feel like, oh man, I feel this person's emotion and, and maybe what they're going through. So let me sit and be a listening ear. And I think it's kind of started there in terms of the mentorship. There is just a gap. Um, and I've seen it, especially in politics where we don't build out our bench and I see it on mostly on the candidate side, right? Where you've got politicians who've been in an elective office for a very, very long time. And when they're ready to move on, um, there's nobody there to take up the mantle and, and, and for them to pass the baton to, cause we're not, we're not building a strong bench. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't think it is just because someone's selfish. I just think there's, there's variables and maybe a lack of interest from, you know, younger generations in, in, in certain career paths. Um, but it's important to build that bench, especially if, you know, when you're a barrier breaker and you're, you're the first one or the first one of few to do something, you don't want to be the last or you're not doing your job. Right. You don't want to be the last. So you want to be one of many. So and so in order to do that, you got to bring people along with you. Right. And what's the point of, you know, um, shattering a ceiling or breaking a barrier if you're going to be the only one that went through it? And so um, it's important to me that if somebody expresses an interest in this field and it's, an, uh, you know, I have some experience and expertise to share, I'm going to share it mm-hmm. and I'm going to usher that person along. No, that's great. I mean, we we talk. It's a, a subject that we talk a lot about in this, you know, platform is the black coaches, especially in the NFL and NBA, and to your point, building out that bench. And I think what you're saying applies to every walk of life. So I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If uh-huh. you, I think one thing that um, culturally, sometimes I think folks who've been through some things. Um, and I always respect my elders because I have no idea what it was like for them. And I always encourage young people who may get frustrated with somebody's old school ways or thought to think, ah, you can you didn't go through quite what they went through. But I don't think it's necessary to say that somebody coming behind me just because I had it rough or I had it a certain way or I had to pay my dues a certain way that they necessarily have to do that. Right. The work that I feel responsible for is so it's not so tough on them. Facts. All right. So we, we, we touched on it. We have to give a shout out. Like I said, international woman's day, you have a trailblazer in your family, you know, that's just amazing. So we spoke about uh, your grandmother and Gregory, but also highlighted uh, a movie. So they did a movie depicted on her, you know, so explain how that came about and I guess where we can catch the movie. Yeah. So it's, so I, I, I can't even describe how it feels to know that, a, you know, a movie was written about, um, you know, somebody in your family and we're just so proud of her legacy. You know, we've been aware of her, her legacy our whole lives. And they're, um, you know, back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, a lot of the black print media was aware of her accomplishments as well. She was actually um, called the queen of Negro golf. That was the, that was the headline. Um, and then she started moving beyond, you know, uh, the, the field of competition that was just relegated, black folks were relegated to. So, you know, they were relegated to the nine hole course and not the 18 hole course. And they weren't on, you know, integrated, uh, tournaments and, um, integrated golf courses, but she was just so good that she just had to keep moving forward and whatever, whatever was going to stand in her way, she was going to move it. And so at the time it was, you know, racism that stood in her way. So she had to take that, take that head on. But 
the way that the movie came about is actually very interesting. And this is like almost like a small world story. So the movie was written by a man named Curtis Jordan. Um, and he happened upon a story, a, an article about a particular tournament um, and golf match that my grandmother and Gregory had played in against um, his mother. Uh, and he wasn't, um, you know, I won't, I won't get into his, his family dynamics, but um, he just was very interested in learning more about what the experience was. And I think he was very much drawn to Anne's story um, because of the circumstances in which she was excelling at the time. And so he started doing uh, research and digging. He's like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that this person existed and had all these accomplishments. I mean, she won over 300 tournaments and she traveled around the world. This is a, this is a black woman in the 40s, 50s and 60s doing these things. And so he, he really um, did a deep dive and actually wrote an entire movie script. And what's unique about the movie playing through, it's a fictional account of this tournament, the tournament that she integrated, integrated. And the two lead characters, there's Babs Watling, who is loosely based on um, his mother. And then there's Anne, who's an actual real person. And everything you see about Anne in that movie is actually true. Um, so I think a little people get a little confused. They're going, well, it's, it's not a it's not a biopic, but it, everything that you see in there about um, Anne is true. Down to, you know, the opening scene where she loses her parents um, in a car accident at a very young age. That actually happened with to my grandmother. Um, so in any case, this movie was written, and um, they had cast some lead actresses um, to play in the, the the role, the role of Anne and Babs. And for some reason, the actresses weren't really just able to pull off the golf piece. So they had to reevaluate and say, you know what, let's find some women who can actually play golf, who can actually who can act as well. Right. And so they um, happened upon the Instagram uh, Instagram page of Andia Winslow. Andia Winslow is a very, very talented athlete, activist, voiceover artist, actress. Um, she actually was the first black woman to play, um, Ivy league golf. She, she went to Yale university and played Ivy league golf there. And she, um, she's actually on that show, a league of their own that's on Amazon prime now. And so, uh, Curtis essentially DM'd her and, um, she ended up, uh, auditioning and getting picked for the role of Anne. Now, unbeknownst to them, um, Andia's parents had spent some time in Alaska and actually knew my parents. <laughs> and so she, you know, she tells her, her family, guess what? You know, I have this opportunity to play this role. And so that's how we got brought into it and come to find out, you know, Anne had inspired Andia young in her life to actually play golf. And, cool. and so we got, we didn't know, we didn't even know the movie was being made. And then she ended up getting cast and that's how we found out. And then of course, um, Curtis and the producers um, were great about reaching out to us and inviting us down to set so we were the last few days of filming, my sister and I went down and, you know, um, so went the story and, you know, to bring it full circle, um, the Las Vegas Raiders uh, had an opportunity to screen the movie and, and we invited members of the community and of course, uh, my colleagues to come watch the movie. And that was a very, very special moment for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, awesome movie. And I think one of the cooler parts of the story is uh, she picked up golf at like 31, you know, um, and some consider that later in life picking up something that's new it's kind of an inspirational story to keep learning so to speak too so 
Yeah, she was, um, she was, man, she, I'm telling you, that woman, I didn't, she was a beast. Like, I, I didn't even as a child really have as much of appreciation as I do as an adult woman living out in the world um, of what she was able to do and how her, not just her physical strength, because she was, she was athletic. She, um, she also, she was also really good at tennis. Um, she actually won a city championship in tennis. So when she picked up golf, she already had the athletic inclination and that's why she excelled so so well at the sport let's go mm -hmm. so where is it at how how can we see it if we haven't seen it so um it's not really available to the public yet i think that you know the the movie the folks behind the film are um looking still looking for a distributor um so right now uh, the only way to see is if there's a private screening um or if it makes the film festival circuit mm -hmm. there is an event coming up and i'm sorry i don't have the specific date but there's an event coming up in seattle i know they're screening it in seattle very soon and i believe there's um the next uh cleveland international film festival festival um if anybody of any of your listeners are in the area in the seattle area or in the Cleveland area, I would um, just Google playing through movie. They have an Instagram page. Um, they have a Twitter account. Um, and all of that information is posted on those accounts. I love it. All right. So in the interest of time, and we could keep going, because there's a couple of, you know, I am going to throw this one really quick out. So uh, kind of growing up, you know, we had like Rock the Vote, and then they have Soul to the Polls and things like that. Where is that going? And, and why is that not as prevalent? And we're seeing that push anymore? Or maybe we're just not known, but it was just seen like it was so in your face. And I just don't think it's as big of a push anymore. Yeah. You know, I think it um, it's generational. I think that um, and yet this is a whole academic conversation on integration mm. and maybe, you know, the, the impacts it's had on um black unity in the black community. And, and I think that that's part of it, but I also think it's generational and um, apathy seems to be um, pretty prevalent, I would say in um, some of the younger generations and saying, you know, going back to the, my vote doesn't count. Why should I vote or, or, or to their credit rallying against the two party system and saying, we need change. We need something different. Um, and saying, like, I'm not going to vote. And I think that that, sort of um, chips away at some of those movements that you mentioned and um, but they're still there the movements are still there um, there's still lots of uh, young leaders who are stepping up to the plate um, the, the new president of the local NWCP chapter here Quentin Savoir he's doing he's doing the work uh, make it work Nevada is doing the work there's so many groups led by young folks um, who are doing the work but I, I, to answer your question I, I really just think it's a matter of um, those two variables and probably more. Um, but I, I really, I really hope, um, we see a resurgence of people appreciating the right that, um, certainly our elders had to, had to fight for and, um, understanding that our voice is so, so important. I've seen local, um, races come down to 20 votes. Uh, I've seen that. I think, you know, a lot of times if you're not in politics, people tend to pay attention to more of the national conversation, which is extremely important as well. But um, all politics is local and, and knowing who your city council person is or your county commissioner is and, and the things that they're responsible for doing that impact your everyday life uh, is just as important. And those those races can come very, very close. 
Absolutely. All right. So the last wrapping it up here, we like to uh, end the show with what we call the assist. This is where you get to drop a coaching gym or just words you live by or something you would have told your younger self. So just a quick quote or, or something you live by, words you live by. Um, don't wallow in your mistakes. It is so easy. If you, especially my personality, I, I am my worst critic. I beat myself up if I, uh, if I misstep or do something wrong. You're going to do that. That's life. Um, so I would say don't wallow in those mistakes. Use them as a strength and just say, oh, God, I didn't really like the way that felt. So how can I prepare myself better for the next time? Um, okay. I have multiple pieces of advice, but if you're just looking for one, that's it. <laughs> MH, take us on with your final thoughts. No, Piper, I really appreciate you. And if I haven't said it enough, uh, I thank you for what you've done for me in the short time that I've known you and obviously your time tonight, but you're always looking out uh, for everyone. You're always building your bench uh, just of just people. So I, I really appreciate you and all that you've done and, and look forward to uh, working with you more. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to always support. And like I said at the top of the show, I'm just so proud that you have this platform and congratulations on multiple seasons. And I'm I'm happy that Black in Sports is my first podcast experience. Let's go. All right. Well, we want to thank our guest Piper again for jumping on the on the mics with us. We want to thank you, the people, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show, gained something out of it. You know, we're dropping new shows every Thursday, so please subscribe on our YouTube channel as that's uh, visually where you can see what goes on because visual representation matters. And uh, just wherever you listen to podcasts, check us out. All right, so stay safe, practice gratitude, and know we're rooting for you. Screaming, all us blacks got a sports and entertainment until we even. Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Yeah. 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 Shoot me, I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Spat bouts and racks on handmade new rags. Shoot me, I'm rooting for everybody that's black. That's everybody from sports to college class to rap and back.